Hello again, and welcome to Engaging History. This is episode two. This episode title is Early Humans, in other words, Pre-Greek Civilizations. In world civilizations, there's essentially three parts of history that we study before we get to that 1,000-year time period called the Middle Ages. So prior to the Middle Ages, you have three distinct areas. You have your pre-Greek civilizations, then you have the Greek civilization because of the vast amounts of information, knowledge, and ideas they shared with the Western world. And then you finish off ancient history with the look at ancient Rome and what they cast on to both good and bad, as well as with the Greeks to modern day society. So again, my name is Christopher Kinsella. Please remember my podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is an opinion or interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. The purpose of all of my podcasts is in general is to discuss history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the world around you, but in a way that is understandable and interesting. In this specific podcast, we're going to look how early humans started to demonstrate the idea of what today we call intelligence. Why and how did we start to speak? Do you have a fear of public speaking? Well, if you and I were transported back to this time period we're about to start with, if you had a public fear of speaking, you'd be doing well. Me, I'd probably be dead within the hour. But what we're going to see, though, is how that would have benefited you at this time and how and why humans stopped, quote-unquote, roaming the earth and started to settle down. Where did they decide to call home? And most importantly, why? Once again, I'm looking for is that how and why. So from here, in sense of what we're going to be looking at with pre-Greek civilizations, is we're going to start out with this idea of the definition of history. Now, I know I spent some time on that in the last podcast, but here I just want to share one more thing about the definition of history. History in its its barest form really consists of a five-word definition, a study of human progress. Progress, by and large, is considered a positive word. Rarely is pog- does the word progress receive a negative connotation. But please remember this, even if you're going to sign off because you just don't want to listen any further about world history, remember that for every positive, in other words, progress, there will always be a negative. For every positive that some human events that helps humanity in a positive way, lurking will always be a way to use it as a negative. So with that, let's look in then to this idea of the origins of history. We're going to start out with the Paleolithic age. Now here's where you need to put your seatbelts on because in a relatively short period of time, we're going to go from 400,000 BC to 7,000 BC, practically within a flash. But there's something substantially important to discuss in this 393,000 year time period. What I'm about to share with you doesn't even hit the tip of the iceberg, but for the purposes of discussing history, 
it paves the way and gives us the foundation that we need to move forward. For more on this, though, if you were interested in learning far much more about the Paleolithic Age, again, you'd want to look at anthropology podcasts or uh, college classes. Also, the humanities will cover this as well. So what do we look at in this 900, excuse me, 393,000 year period? We're going to find out that reason governs action. Prior to this, the humans that are habitating the earth, we see evidence that they moved around, hunters and gatherers. But around the 400,000 BC mark, we begin to see something that was uncharacteristic of civilizations before them, and that is one word, organization. We find artifacts carbon dated to this time where we see some of the same types of artifacts categorized or organized in one particular area. Remember too, folks, generally by and large, anybody listening to this podcast, I certainly would hope, generally doesn't worry about where the next meal comes from. We have cabinets, pantries, refrigerators, and freezers full of food. I don't mean this to be funny. But even if you found out you were penniless and had no home to go to, chances are you'd have somebody to go to. Even if you didn't have that, you'd figure out real quick how to get food into your stomach, even if it was by illegal means. Remember, folks, at this time at 400,000 BC, there's no 24-hour Walmarts. There's no drive through McDonald's and Burger Kings. So when people consumed food, That was a feeling truly of euphoria, a full stomach. So therefore, we all know that a full stomach doesn't last long. The pangs of hunger will come back to us literally within hours. So therefore, humans, folks, didn't want to move unless truly they had to. After the 400,000 BC mark, we begin to see that thoughts and communication begin to start evolving. We begin to communicate first non-verbally and then verbally, but we do it not because we want to. We do it because we need to. Our initial evidence of first first verbal communications that we have uncovered evidence of or two found that we were basically trying to communicate for purposes of defense and purposes of food. That said, look at how and why, however, that that has changed today. In terms of verbal communication, human communication verbally, depending upon the language that you're analyzing and the people that speak it, in the 21st century, anywhere from 75% to 83% of human verbal communication is generally around the exact same topic. And that topic is a topic that sometimes we can indulge in, sometimes we just overhear, and sometimes we can become victim of. The topic is gossip. We also see at this time the arrival of art. All the way back to when I was studying uh, college history in the 1990s, it was still believed that cave people painted on cave walls to communicate to other cave dwellers, human dwellers, that there was food outside that a human walked into the cave and upon walking in sees a bison, a buffalo, some form of food, and they know they're getting hungry. So the thought was that this human would go into the cave and get yellow ochre and burnt umber and these other natural materials 
and paint these animals on the wall as a way to communicate that, hey, there's food out there. But there was always a problem with that theory. The problem was it took too long. Think about it. You are hungry. Your family members with you are hungry. You happen to spot live food outside. Are you really going to run into that cave? Take the time to paint that out. By the time you're done and you point to the wall and the others are trying to get the idea, okay, I see what you're talking about. Let's go out there. That food's long gone. And anthropologists and historians were never able to explain that gap. So what we found, folks, and again, the reason for this distinction at 400,000 BC is that these cave painters were painting for different reasons. It had nothing to do with communicating that there's food out there. The reason for the painting was something far more complex. Think about it this way. This is going to get uncomfortable, and I hear, I, I, I'm with you. But it's the only way I can really demonstrate this effectively. Imagine that if you were, or whenever you were in high school or college, that you had to go and see your teacher. And when you went and saw your teacher at his or her office, you sat down across from their desk and you took out your notebook and said, yeah, I just had a couple of questions on today's class. And then all of a sudden you stopped. You just stopped saying anything. You stopped moving. Because right over your teacher or professor's shoulder, there was a stencil drawing, a drawing on regular white paper that essentially was done by pencil, maybe colored pencils. But why did you stop cold? Because it was a stencil drawing of you. It was a picture of you that you could clearly recognize was you. Why would that bother you? Why would that make your skin crawl? Because for her or her, your teacher, to have drawn that out to such detail meant that they were really staring at you intently for a long time. That would make anybody nervous, right? That said, why? Because almost as though they were fixated on you. And that's not normal, wouldn't it? Is it? Of course not. So what we have began to surmise is that early humans painted on these walls in order for this idea that if they could draw them out in full color, then perhaps they could also control them. By staring at them intently and recreating them, these early cave dwellers anticipated that from that, they would be able to control these animals. What we also see a few last things is that in this time period is that evidence that life was extremely difficult. And the way that we're able to determine that is by looking at the skeletal remains when we can carbon date them to this time. We were able to determine that at this time, we see a lot of skeletal remains that had fractures, breaks within their bones, within their skeletal tissue. Just like right now, if you one could see me walking up and down the street, you would not have any idea that at one time I had a compound fracture in my left leg. There's no way you'd notice that by simply watching me walk back and forth because I'm long healed. That was over 15 years ago. But that 15 years ago, when I was trying to prove to my then girlfriend, now wife, that, hey, sure, I can rollerblade. Who can't rollerblade? Three hours on rollerblades, and I wound up in the emergency room because, well, 
I can't rollerblade. So today you'd never notice that there was anything wrong with my leg at one time. But a simple x-ray will always show the calcification in those areas of the double break. It will always be there. Essentially, it's a scar on the bone. That's how we can also tell that from the skeletal remains back then, that life turned out had a lot of hardship. Through the discovery of planting and caring for seeds, sorry guys, we're going to have to pass this credit out to the woman of the hunters and gatherers age. It was woman that paved the way for us to get out of the Paleolithic age and into the Neolithic age because they were the ones, while the men were out hunting, they were the ones that took these seedlings and cultivated them and found out that they maybe don't have to go towards and follow a food source, that maybe they could harvest their own food source right where they were standing. In other words, maybe we don't have to hunt and gather always on the road day after day. So one last point, a sixth point about this is one then that our hunters and gatherers end. At what year or even roughly 1,000 year period did hunters and gatherers finally leave the face of the earth? The fact of the matter is, folks, they haven't. Hunters and gatherers are still with us, and it's not a play on words. You can see hunters and gatherers in the far reaches corners of the earth, such as southern Australia and northern Siberia, where people constantly are on the move. These are people that have no connection with anything electronic, no place to call home. They are still the hunters and gatherers. So that leaves us out, it gets us out of the Paleolithic age. Again, Paleolithic, which means old stone. And we get into the Neo or new, the Neolithic age, which now we're going to slam on the brakes pretty hard. And instead of covering 393,000 years, we're going to cover just about 4,000 years. Why? Because we finally stopped the need to constantly be on the move. We're slowing down now. Now we have planted crops. The men figured out how to tame animals. That was given us more stability. I said stability. But did it bring security? Think about that. I asked you in the last podcast, if you had to leave your house in a hurry, what would you take with you? And while you might say, well, on the top of my head, I would take this, this, and this, great. But what would you be thinking out as your house was burned down or hit by a flood or blown away in a hurricane or tornado? You'd be thinking about the things you left behind and lost permanently, didn't, wouldn't you? The fact of the matter is, folks, planted crops and tamed animals, again, a positive progress. It brought us more stability. But did it bring more security? Not stability security. That's the downside, folks, to settling down. When we were hunters and gatherers, we never possessed more than we could move at a moment's notice, whether it because of an invading human tribe, a human threat, whether it because an animal that we were once hunting is now hunting us. We simply picked up what we had and we moved. It was the way of life. There was no other way. But now we can settle down means we're going to start accumulating things. We're going to start accumulating things that's not easy to move. Before, when somebody threatened our quote-unquote homestead, we simply picked up and moved. 
because we were following the food source anyhow. There's no downside to that. But now we're settling down. How easy or easily can you really just pick up everything and move? You can't. Your animals that are fenced in, they're not going to follow you. That's too much of a liability, especially if you're especially if you're fleeing an enemy or another kind of a threat. All of your plants that you've been cultivating can't take that with you. Now leaving is a real threat. See the way our human mind now has to change. Second part of this is that being settled down, another plus, we could actually accumulate food surpluses. Food surpluses would also then allow us to make an exchange of goods. So an exchange of goods means people in plot or family clan A has more vegetables than they anticipated. They have full stomachs now. They know vegetables don't last long. But people over in plot B have more fruits than they needed. So there could be an easy swap there, exchange of surplus of goods. But what about when family B, they don't have any food, but they're getting hungry. Family A sees that. So family A gives them, B, some of their excess. Fine. But there may come a time that A needs food. A needs to be paid back. How do we confirm this exchange of goods? Now, folks, we start getting into a writing system. More about that later on. Number three is we also see a rise of primitive, and I'm using this term loosely, but of primitive armies. If we are going to be stable and in one area, and picking up and leaving now could mean death and destruction because we can't take all of our possessions with us, then we begin to look around at humans from other small clans and figure out that the stronger ones maybe shouldn't need to have the responsibility of developing their own food and cultivating food, that maybe what they need truly is to be responsible for the security of their little area. This is where we see the evidence, the outline evidence of these early primitive armies. Please remember, too, a fourth thing, that the more developed the society, the more it created the need for centralized authority. Again, another plus. Then how could there be a minus in that? Think about it. Imagine you're in your workplace, whether you have a workforce, you're part of a workforce of 10 people, 100 people, or 1,000 people. Imagine that all of you are at work, and you feel the ground shake and the lights go off, and you hear massive explosions all around outside. And you hunker down and you wait for the threat to pass, and you finally walk out of your workplace that might be damaged beyond recognition, but somehow you survived. Imagine that the world all around you has been destroyed. It's just you, that group of people, 10, 100, or 1,000, whatever that number is. So here's my question to you. Who's in charge? Who's going to be in charge for the well-being of the group as a whole? Don't be naive. Don't be nice. Be realistic. Who is the only person in that entire group that you trust wholeheartedly more than anybody else? You know who it is. I'm speaking to that person. It's you. It's okay. Well, then problem solved. Right. 
But if there's 10, 100, or 1,000 people listening to the same podcast, everybody just got the same answer. And that's going to be a problem, isn't it? Not everybody can be in charge. And you might say, well, initially, okay, fine, then you know what? We're not going to figure out who's in charge. We're all equally in charge. Great. Until you begin to become so preoccupied with hunger pains or thirst that you start looking towards one another for direction. And that's an easy reason. How about the 10, 100, or 1,000 of you that are just simply roaming the landscape, trying to find a food source, and boom, not only do you find a food source, somehow you manage to find fresh, clean, running water. Wonderful, (laughs) except for one problem. There's already a human population there. And when they look at you and you look at them, both sides know that neither side is there to collect for the Red Cross. You're there because you both have the same need. And they're going to defend it with everything they've got, just as you are going to fight for access to it with everything you have. That, folks, those criteria is what brings us to what we call the dawn of human civilization. The dawn of human civilization, where again, this is where the field of history begins to come into its own. So as we begin to start settling down. One of the questions that I asked you in the last podcast too was to look out your window where you lived. And I asked you to think about why do you live there? Why that particular area? Why do we have areas in our own local area, much less county or state, where humans don't settle and just haven't settled? The reason being, folks, is because of what we look for in a, in a uh, positive settlement is the same things that our human ancestors looked for. Four things. One was temperature extremes. We wanted to avoid the temperature extremes as much as possible, but it wasn't always possible. Remember, on this globe, planet Earth, a vast majority of that, as you know, is water, roughly 70%. So that 30% that's left to us, that's not a huge chunk, is it? As a result, we're going to be reaching out and racing to try to get the land that avoids the temperature extremes. We're concerned about the quality of terrain. We don't want something that is either too hilly or something that's too low because of a flood bank. So we're looking for a quality of terrain. By and large, what we do want to see is higher ground versus lower ground for purposes of protection. We also want terrain that is able to be accessed easily. In other words, mobility. We want to be able to engage an imposing enemy threat quickly. We also want to be able to retreat quickly. But finally, and most importantly, the land that we looked at had to have the fourth thing, and that was water access. No water, no local source of water, no dice. We're not interested in anything else. The other three criteria wouldn't matter. There has to be water access. Now, you might say, okay, Chris, but yeah, the place that I looked at, the apartment that I have, condo town, <laughs> now, I, I wasn't worried about the water. If I want water, I go, you know, to turn on the faucet in the bathroom or the kitchen. Okay, I grant you that. But then answer me this. Why in a high-rise condominium complex with the exact same layout, exact same square footage, why does a condominium that faces the lake, the river, the ocean, always command a higher dollar amount? than a condominium or unit that faces the city because we put a value on even looking 
at water, we put a higher value on. It's intrinsic in us. The water is right there, just as you said. But instinctively, we are still drawn to it and will pay more to see it. Don't believe me? When you have an opportunity, go to Google and type in the search phrase, World at Night by National Geographic. And look at that map of all the lights on throughout the world and look at where the lights are. The largest collection of lights, by and large, is near a water source. So that's one way. Secondly, when I told you before about a condominium commanding the exact same dollar amount, it wouldn't if one faced water. But there is one building in the world today that the top floor condominiums exact same square footage, actually do command the same price. And it's in the Twisting Tower of Dubai, a place that I happen to see myself, the foundation for it being dug when I traveled traveled to the Middle East, into Dubai. That is the only high-rise condominium folks in the world that has an equal access view of the Saudi Arabian desert, the Persian Gulf, and the city of downtown Dubai. All of those, every unit has a view of that. Why? Because each floor turns, folks. That's why they call it the Twisting Tower of Dubai. Now, if you have a cool $4 to be able to plunk down, you will get the lowest ranking unit in the complex. If you really want to have those higher views, you're going to be looking at closer to $40 for a unit. That said, that then brings us to the end of these overarching characteristics about how and why these early civilizations chose a place to call home, why we began to start carving out the need to have to write things down for purposes of accounting, not that they called it that. So what we're going to do in the next podcast is we're going to settle down now at around 5300 BC, and we're going to look at the very first westernized Mesopotamian civilization. And we're going to see how they started to develop this idea of writing and schools and even this idea of using what we call a verbal language. Between now and then, what I would like you to do on a plain piece of paper is just to simply write your name. Just write your name, whether it be in handwriting, whether it be in printing, doesn't matter. And look at those letters. If I asked you what those letters were, you would have no other answer for me, most likely, than to say letters. They're letters, Chris. They're letters. You told me to write my name out. Yeah. But there's actually something more basic than that. But because you've been writing those letters, most likely for your entire life since early grade school on, you've never really been taught to look at those letters as anything but letters. So in the next podcast, we're going to start out by looking at the situation that I found myself in when I was traveling around the world. And those things that I called letters, folks, mean absolutely nothing to a vast majority of the world's population. So thank you for listening. Please note that again, the next episode, that's what we're going to talk about is the rise of the Mesopotamian civilization, the Assyrians and other fun groups that we learn so much from and still use so much of what those civilizations handed off to us today. In the meantime, between now and the next time when we have the podcast, please go to my website, ceconsella.com. 
feel free to email me with any questions, comments, and or book recommendations, as well as any information, again, on maybe books or types of journal articles or magazine articles you're reading. If you like what we discussed too, please feel free to send me an email at contact.cekinsella at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.